That's probably the reason why I fell in love with running was because of what it did to my mind, mostly. Not my body, you know, like, you know, I've always been fairly fit and active, but it was what it did to my mind that really was transformational. Because going from a low point where I just didn't know what I was doing to now being able to then be creative again. Now I found this running thing and it's really making me excited. Of course, as an entrepreneur, I'm like, what can I do? And so I created Pioneer's Run Crew. So like running is the reason why I did all of that, right? Because of what it did to me. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. My guest this week is Sid Baptista. Sid's a lot of things. He's a husband and a father, a runner, a community builder and leader, and also an entrepreneur. He's the founder of the Pioneers Run Crew, which is based in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood. He's also the creator of Pioneers Performance Streetwear, which is an apparel line with a focus on serving diverse people with diverse body types from diverse communities. I'm super excited to share this conversation with all of you. It's one of my favorite ones that I've had for the podcast to date. Sid and I covered a lot of ground. We talked about growing up as the sons of entrepreneurial-minded immigrants in Massachusetts and how those experiences have shaped our career trajectories. He told me about his hometown of Dorchester, which is Boston's biggest, most populous, and most diverse neighborhood, and how he's seen it evolve over the past three decades. We got into running, Sid's experience as a sprinter in high school, and how he found distance running as an adult. We also discussed culture and community, how Sid is trying to make running more inclusive and accessible through his work, what he sees happening industry-wide that both excites and worries him, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love for the sport. Their spring and summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. From their ultra-versatile session tees and tanks cut from a silky, soft stretch knit to the soft yet supportive Alston half tights. That is my go-to workout kit every Wednesday morning, by the way. These pieces are built to work as hard as you do. I'm also a big fan of the Twilight Tank, which is the singlet I've been racing in for the past few years. It's super lightweight and built to race, and I just feel faster when I put it on. In the spirit of Twilight, Tracksmith is hosting a series of 5Ks through the months of July and August in eight cities in the US. I will be at the two in San Francisco, and I cannot wait. These Twilight 5Ks focus on getting you to your fastest time with pacers, a fast track, and a great environment. For more information, please go to tracksmith.com slash twilight5000. And remember, if you buy anything on tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. You can do that by using the code MARIO22 at checkout. That's MARIO22 when you check out at tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder, my favorite sunglasses for running, driving, walking the dog, and pretty much everything else that I do outside. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they are super fun. 
I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just $25 to $35 bucks a piece. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two, maybe three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com Mario and use the code Mario15 to get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario and use the code M-A-R-I-O-1-5 to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Last thing before we get into this one, there's a new podcast that I want to tell you about called Legacy of Speed. This new show follows the transformation of a San Jose State track program in the 1960s. What started out as a second-tier state college that no one outside of California had ever heard of quickly became known as the home to Speed City. The guidance of one coach and his unconventional techniques launched the careers of the fastest sprinters of the day. Host Malcolm Gladwell, a pretty solid runner himself and a fan of the sport in his own right, traces the journeys of those sprinters who went on to ignite a boycott movement and protest the 1968 Summer Olympics. Malcolm talks to Olympic athletes, sports journalists, performance coaches, and documentarians. And you'll hear from some of the best runners of all time, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Lee Evans, just to name a few. It's a story about athletes who dared to take a stand and the mentors who made them fast and brave enough to change the world. You can find Legacy of Speed wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and with that all out of the way, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with a living pioneer in the running space, Sid Baptista. Well, should we just jump right into things here? Yeah, man. I'm so happy that I can do this in my office relaxed because I almost was going to be in New York City in a WeWork probably having this conversation in a in a small enclosed room. Um, but that's the life I'm living as, you know, as an entrepreneur, you just got to roll with the punches. But so... Yeah, and I mean, this conversation, we rescheduled it from last week because you were in Denver or Utah? I can't remember. Yeah, you were in Denver Denver for some show, and you were like, hey, we could do this from my hotel room, but I would much rather be at home. So just kind of give me a snapshot of a day in the life of Sid Baptista right now. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, uh, man, it's, 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 it's definitely a hectic one right now. So I'm a dad, uh, and so it starts with... I try to have like, and I'm going to give you, I guess, a, a day of a life, like a full day, right? So mm-hmm. I try to have two hours to myself in the morning. So I try to be up by 7 a.m. I'm sorry, by 5 a.m. <laughs> I wish. By 5 a.m., you know, have some time for myself. Really, I've really picked up uh, gratitude practice, meditation, and working out as kind of the things that center me and, and kind of slow me down and allow for me to appreciate and just be still and also be present um, and it's just, it's, I need it because if I don't, then I'm crazy, right? Um, and then I work out. Um, I haven't been running as much recently. Um, we'll get into that. Um, I had to get some inserts. Um, but, uh, so I'm getting back into it and changing my running form because of the way I run. Um, I'm like too bouncy and it's putting too much stress on my feet. And uh, and so I haven't been running as much, but I've been working out. And then I get Sebastian 
I get him um, for, you know, feed him breakfast, get him to school, and then I start my work day. Um, and I'm in the office. So a typical work day is typically coming into the office and figuring out what needs to be done. I'm not at that point yet where, like, things are planned out and I know what's going to be worked on for the next two weeks, which is unfortunate. Um, and then, like, for example, I saw that some of my fabric suppliers were going to be in Denver. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to Denver because I have never met them in person. And I've never yeah. – it's really hard when, when you develop product and people are in different countries – and different time zones and different languages. It's like, it's really hard to communicate over. So you don't really ever talk on a phone, right? So it's always through email and you're almost a day apart. You're sleeping while they're awake. And so when I saw that some of them were going to be in Denver, I was like, I'm going. So yeah, jump on a plane, go to Denver for a day, touch some fabrics, feel some fabrics, look at some trims. Oh, this is all me learning too. I, I kind of look at it as like my business school because I don't know it. I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to the product side. So, um, so yeah, um, that's why I did that. And today I was supposed to be in New York City for a fitting. And I just, you know, I was going to do that one virtually. I'm just going to take it and do it virtually so I don't have to travel and I have to be back here tomorrow for the Pioneers Run Crew five-year anniversary. We have a wow. run tomorrow morning. And so it was one of those things where this morning I was like rushing to get to the airport and I was like, I stopped and I was like, called my wife. I was like, I need to make a decision here. I need to be in New York for this fitting. But I have this event. I got to be back tomorrow. I cannot miss my flight back here tonight. And if I do, I'm going to be screwed. And we just decided that we can do the fitting over the phone, over uh, over screen, because I'm not the technical designer. It doesn't matter from there. The mm -hmm. person who needs to be there is there. And I, you know, and as long as I want to be there, I just can't. So, I mean, that what you just described is the life of an entrepreneur. And no matter what <laughs> your I guess area of interest is just that kind of bouncing around uh, sort of like managing the day-to-day -day chaos is part of it. And I can certainly relate to that on some level, but for you, like, are you someone who's always kind of been that way? Like when something excites you, I mean, even if you've got like a couple dozen things exciting you at once, you're just like, bam, I'm here, bam, I'm there, bam, I'm going there. Like no nonstop. Unfortunately, yes. But I think it's what makes me good at what I do mm -hmm. is because I go full full into it and willing to learn and fail and willing to just get it done. Um, but I do need to learn <laughs> as we grow, as we scale a bit, I do need to learn how to let some things go mm -hmm. and trust others and be okay that I can't do it all. Yeah. Um, and most of the time I shouldn't be doing it all. Um, and so, so yes, I am that way. Uh, but I think that when you watch companies grow, you have founders and CEOs who can only go so far with the company before they have to then let someone else do it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we're, we're very small, but I like to think about kind of like where we're going. And I need to learn how to be the person who can continue to grow with the company and not just like the founder who can be scrappy and do everything and then like not be able to just like do what I'm, I'm supposed to do and let everyone else do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Is trusting other people and empowering them to you know, do whatever it is that they need to do something that's been challenging for you? Yes and no. I say yes because I'm currently dealing with that right now mm -hmm. on the performance, so uh, on the apparel line. So Pioneer's performance streetwear side of things. Um, 
and no because I've done it for Pioneers Run Crew and I've done it really well for Pioneers Run Crew and they remind me of how well yeah. I've done it. And I think the challenge right now with the apparel side is that I don't have teammates who are full-time who are in this with me 100% because there are a lot of contractors that I'm hiring and it's really hard to, you know, because contractors are contractors, they're in mm -hmm. and out. Uh, and on the Pioneers Run Crew side, there are people who are bought into the mission, the vision, the community. And, and so I've been actually very good at empowering and putting people in place to succeed there. So much so that they tell me, I, I had I had an interview with with uh, with someone recently and they asked me what my superpower was as a founder. And so then I asked my run crew team, uh, the leaders there, and they said, we think that you know how to empower people and put them in places to succeed. So it's just figuring out how to transition that over to this side of the business. Um, and maybe it's just time. Yeah. And sometimes you need that reminder to know that you're capable of it. Yes. And I say that as someone who has had similar struggles, you know, over the last six years building my own business. And at first it's just you and you're like, all right, I got this vision. This is what I want to do. And yeah. even if I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z things, like I had no idea how to, you know, put out a newsletter or produce a podcast or sell a sponsorship sales. You're like, I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. And then you're doing all of those things. And, you know, you're like, I still got like this half dozen other things that I need to do. And, oh, all right, I should bring on help. And then you got this like process of like bringing on help and you're like, ah, I don't know if they can do it as well or if they're as invested. And then you got to remind yourself like, um, hey, I've been here before. I've done this. Other people know that I can empower them to, you know, help me out with this thing. And, and you give them that trust. And then you're like, oh, well, why didn't I do this like yeah. you know, six months ago? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. And I didn't know how hard it would be uh, until I realized like, man, I'm that guy who's not letting go. Like, I need to learn how to let this go. Um, yeah. But hey, to each his own experience. And I think that's experience is the best teacher. Yeah. I want to talk about Pioneer's Run Crew, Pioneer Streetwear line, but let's just zoom out from that and talk about entrepreneurship. I yes. mean, you, in a lot of ways, define yourself as an entrepreneur. And I'm curious, like, where that comes from. Have you always had, like, an entrepreneurial spirit or is that something that came to you later in life uh i have always had an entrepreneurial spirit and in reflection more recently i realized that it comes deeply embedded in my family history mm -hmm. uh my grandfather uh and my family so they my, my family's from the cape Verde islands off the west coast of africa and my grandfather was a shoemaker there and he made and sold his own shoes. And then the family migrated to Angola uh, in the 60s. And my grandfather f opened a retail location, uh, like a, super, a mini supermarket. Um, either that, yes, he opened a mini supermarket there. And then he had to, they had to flee Angola in the 70s because of war, 70s, 80s, because of war. And so when he got back to the Cape Verde Islands, he opened another retail store. And then... My family migrated here, and they all have retail stores. So sitting, I'm sitting up above in my office. I'm actually above a retail store that we had as kids. Uh, that's no longer. It used to be a, a sportswear store. So we sold, you know, um, like sneakers, like Fila, Adidas. So all the sneakers we're talking about: D Brown sneakers, Reebok. Like we used to sell that stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and that was before they tightened up. Like that was before Nike, and like they all had. You didn't need a 
uh, a an account with the big retailer to to sell their shoes. You could just buy it and sell it. And then we, and then later when that happened, we would just drive to New York and buy a lot of product and sell it. Uh, and so I grew up in it. I've always been. I used to go to the flea markets on the weekends and like sell T-shirts. And but then. My parents pushed me away from it and told me to go get a degree. And I got an accounting degree thinking like, oh, maybe I can do this. But even in college, I had a couple businesses. I was selling T-shirts and sneakers in college. Like I had a college roommate tell me that recently. And I was like, yeah, this is it's deeply embedded. Dude, this is the first time that we've talked at any length. And I'm so glad that we're doing it. And we both grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up in Worcester. You grew up in Dorchester. And I want to talk specifically about Dorchester and what you're building there. But I hear you tell your story about your family coming to this country and setting up retail shops. And that is what you grew up with. And I mean, it's really like in your blood, right? Yeah. So, you know, you're in college and you're running, you know, various businesses or thinking of things. And there, there's always like an idea that you want to pursue. And then you're like, I could just do that. And your family's like pushing you to go to college. And I'm thinking about my family. I mean, they came from Europe, Italy specifically. My dad came to the U.S. when he was 12. You know, my grandparents hustled hard just to make it. You know, they're cleaning out apartments. My grandfather worked in laundry. Eventually, they started buying property and they got into real estate. And yeah. this is back in you know, the, the 70s um, and set themselves up and our family up pretty well for the next couple of decades. But then my dad started his own little plumbing business. And I would see these things happening as a kid. And then I'm realizing like, when I when I got into college, um, I'm like, not on scholarship, I've got to help pay for things like I want to contribute. I remember me and one of my teammates, I got him to go in with me and we would go to Ocean State job lot. And yes. we would buy power bars for like 59 cents a piece. And then we would sell them on campus and online for like a dollar fifty, and that's the hustle. Doing that, yeah, just hustling like in that way. And I never thought twice about it at the time. Like this is just kind of like what I what I learned as I, yeah. you know, as I grew up. And then my dad, same way, he was like, "Look, no Frioli has ever gone to college. We want you to go to school." He used to tell me, I've said this on other episodes of podcast. I don't want you working with a pick and shovel like yeah. I did. So he was in the trades and worked as a plumber on top of all this other stuff. And I did, I went to college, you know, kind of got a job. And I mean, almost from the beginning, just that entrepreneurial spirit was pulling at me as well. I'm like, at some point I'm going to work for myself yeah. because I just, I just have to, uh, it just feels like the the right thing to do. So I'm hearing you tell that and I'm like, man, like we've kind of a little bit older than you, but we've kind of lived these like parallel lives yeah. in a lot of ways. It's interesting because our parents know how hard it is. Mm-hmm to work for yourself and to and to never really know if it's going to work. Yeah. And so they don't want that for you. Exactly. That's but exactly it. You need to learn for yourself, right? And you know, I did the you know, I got an accounting degree. I went to work for a big four. So I worked at PwC for 6 years and I was like making good money. I bought a Lexus. I was like but this sucks. I hate this. Yeah. Okay, like I have a nice car. I make good money, but I don't like what I do when I sit after the travel and you get to the client and you're sitting there. It's like, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think it was, it was definitely very hard telling my mom that I quit that job and my dad. And they're just like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, <laughs> and turning in my lease, you know, and, 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 and going to Lisa, uh, get a Kia, but they were just like, why would you leave that job? And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. 
I mean, that's exactly what my dad said to me (laughs) first when I left the security of a good job in Massachusetts, a home that I bought at a very reasonable price in Worcester, set myself up what could have been for life to move to California to work for less money, but to pursue a dream job that I knew eventually would let me work for myself as a coach and a writer after I, I gained some experience. And then I did pretty well at that job as well. And when I had to pivot and I was like, all right, it's time to go all in and and work for myself. I remember telling that to my dad and he's like, why would you do that? (laughs) He's like, that, that makes no sense. You're gonna have to go find another job in like two months. I'm like, no, no, no. That's the goal is to not go find another job in two months. And, um, I don't say this as a, as a means of bragging, but I'm like, glad I did that. It worked out pretty well or, or, or it's working out pretty well. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. It's till this day, my mom will call me. How's the business going? I'm like, oh, it's going great. I'm like making no money, like having such bad dad. I was like, oh, because she will worry and she will stay up worrying. And I just can't put that on her. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going great. Dude, that, that's my dad. We talk every Wednesday and Sunday. And that is one of the first two questions that he has for me, aside from how's Christine doing, my wife? Uh, yeah. How, how's work? How's the business going? Well, she hasn't told me to get a job yet. So I think it's going okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's that's interesting. I love that that we have very similar experiences. Before we move on in this conversation, I really want to set the stage, and stage being a location, that being Dorchester, Massachusetts, where you're from, where you live now. Tell me and my listeners a little bit more about Dorchester. Yeah, man, I'm here now. I love it. Uh, I love that I can live, work, shop get my hair cut, everything in my neighborhood. Because growing up, I was always meant to believe I had to get out of my neighborhood. Like mm-hmm. you gotta get, you gotta get a job, get go to school and get out, leave the hood, right? So I spent 17 years, 18 years, uh, like when did I go to college? 18 years of my life trying to get out of this place only to realize like this is where I wanna be. Um, so that, it brings me a lot of joy to be able to sit here in Dorchester with my own office, you know, and work here. But um, Dorchester is the biggest most populous, most diverse uh, neighborhood of Boston. It continues to be, it continues to be uh, segregated like the rest of the city. So you take Dorchester Ave. Dorchester Ave runs from South Boston, right mm-hmm. over by the seaport, all the way to Milton. You take Dorchester Ave all the way through Dorchester, um, Dorchester, and split down the middle. You got black and brown people on one side. You got white people on the other side, and that's how it's been. Uh, because of redlining. And so there are just small different pockets of villages that are, you know, if, if there's a small pocket of, that's on this side, then only that small pocket will be like all black and brown people, all white people. But it's very segregated in that way. Um, but it's wild because there are so many opportunities for us to coexist. But that's how it, that's how it was. Uh, that's how it was created. And so I grew up on the side on the black and brown side, Geneva, Geneva, um, Bowdoin area of Dorchester. Um, high crime, unfortunately, um, and but just a lot of diversity in even amongst black and brown people because Boston is such a city where people come in from all different countries. So people from the Caribbean, people from all parts of Africa. You know, we have like I'm sitting in Little Saigon where uh, there are a ton of Vietnamese people. Uh, that's a big part of Dorchester. And so we have racially diverse people within the communities of color. And so there's so much uh, there's so much diversity and so much culture here. And so 
my slice of Dorchester has all that culture. Uh, and, and I obviously I'm, so I'm Cape Verdean. Um, and I have the black American experience to a certain extent. And I, but I also have my, I don't have, I'm not, I want to consider myself the, you know, black Americans who, because I know that my family came from this part of Africa. Right. Uh, but I have that being a black man and experience, but then also having that, uh, that experience of, of knowing my family and the culture in the Cape Verde islands and, and all that. How has it changed over the course of your lifetime? I remember very young it being like we had just moved uh we had moved into this house and it was nice it was fun and then that was like the the mid to that was like 92 to like 98 it was like fun to you know I could do anything 98 to like 2005 was just like crime 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 people getting killed um Drugs, drugs weren't even that big, big back then. Actually, it was probably like marijuana that I knew more about, but it was mostly guns and 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 and, and gang violence. Uh, unfortunately, my older brother, he, um, we have we have the same dad, uh, different mom. He got caught up in that life, and so I knew from that experience, like I, I don't want to go that way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then after '05, I went to college. And so then when I moved back, I moved back to the same neighborhood, but now I'm coming with different different perspective. And even before 05, I actually, uh, I went to boarding school. I had the opportunity to go to boarding school. I don't know if you know that. Where'd but, you go? Um, Williston, Northampton. Okay. Out in Western Mass. That is Western Mass. <laughs> as much as I <laughs> love Western Mass, man. I lived there for a long time. So in 98, when it got really, really bad out here, my mom was like, all right, we got to find a school to put you in and get you off the street. So I went to this to this middle school called the uh, Epiphany Middle School in Dorchester, mm-hmm. and it was eight to eight. I would go to class from eight in the morning to eight at night. You got wow. you got history. I mean, so I'm sorry. You have you have school, sports, dinner, uh, everything. Work at yeah, study hall, and then go home, sleep, and go back. And even on the weekends, we'd go back. Uh, and and then so they going through there, they taught me about boarding school. And, and so when I got to boarding school, I was like, wow, there's this whole new world of places and people. And my boarding school had people from all over the world. And so that was my first kind of slice of, of, um, of, of the world. Uh, and, but coming back to Dorchester, I was made to believe like, don't go back or it's, it's dangerous. I don't, I just, I was always taught to just leave and, and, and to be able to be here creating for, for, for the people who are here brings me a lot of joy. So you were gone for what, four years of high school? Four years of high school. Where'd you go to college? UMass Amherst, okay. Western Mass. So you stayed in Western Mass. <laughs> I probably was there longer than you were. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, so I stayed in Western Mass. So I, I stayed out there, UMass Amherst, and then, uh, yeah, so four years, so eight total years out there. Now, I know that you were a sprinter back in your younger days. When did you mm-hmm. first start participating in sport? So in sport in general, mm-hmm. uh, I played on the street, basketball, soccer, football, all that stuff. Played uh, basketball and soccer in middle school. Went to high school. Played basketball and soccer. Picked up track my junior year of co- of, uh, of 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 high school. Broke all of the records my senior year of high school. So the one hundred, the two hundred, the four by one. Went to Penn relays. Uh, and so, fun fact: I went to the same high school that Gabby Thomas went to. Mm-hmm. I'm a little older than her, um, but the year that she 
was really good at, at in high school was the same year that the, the men's team, uh, the boys' team also beat my records. And so we, we have a lot of banter about uh, whose teams were better. But they, they currently, Gabby's like year class hold all the records now. But um, but yeah, so I picked up track my junior year just because I was like, I, I don't want to play a spring sport and let me try this. And I was like really good at it. And so, yeah. Did you run track at UMass? I did not. I tried to walk on. And I, I was good enough to walk on. Uh, I didn't, I didn't commit to continuing to try out. And after I got a taste of what college was like, it was like the track team had this kind of rule, unspoken rule that if you were going to be a walk on, you had to try out twice Mm -hmm. Uh, because they weren't just going to let you on. And after that first tryout, you know, didn't really. I didn't make the team the first time around, although I was I was definitely fast enough because I, I ran a ten eight ten seven ten eight in the in the one hundred. You could have made the team for sure. No, I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then once I like, I kind of felt like, all right, so I'm not making the team. They have this expectation: if you're a walk on, you got to go out twice. You have to buy into the program. And then I got this taste of college life. I was like, I think I'm good. <laughs> I'm just gonna play ball, hang out, start a business. I don't know, do something different. What years were you at UMass? Uh, 2005, 6, 7, 8, and 9. So, 05 to 09. Okay. So, it was a, a few years after I was in college. Going back to the conversation we were having before we hit record and turn the mics on for this, uh, that being basketball. I mean, I was a big UMass basketball fan growing up too, but it was years prior. It was like the years of like Lou Rowe and Marcus yeah. Camby. Yeah, I was going to um, say, yeah, 95. But, that's, yeah. That's yeah, that was, that, was, that was like early on. That was high school for me, but great basketball tradition at UMass, I imagine just like being on campus during the time that you were getting swept up in all of that and just being, like you said, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were good. We were pretty good my years. We uh, we went to the, um, what's, uh, is it the NIC or N- NIT? NIT, NIT, my mm-hmm. bad, yeah, the NIT. We, we, we went to NIT a couple of years when I was there, so it was good, good years. And uh, Victor Cruz, football player Victor Cruz was there too. We were friends. Um, dated one of my friends, and so um, yeah, we were all friends. He was there. I didn't know he was gonna be that good. Victor Cruz ended up going to the Giants and breaking our hearts here in New England. But we won't talk about that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually the second UMass Amherst alum that I've had on the podcast here, just in the last few months. The other being um, Hella Sidibe, who was the first black man to run across the United States, but he played soccer at UMass, oh, yeah. I think right around the same time that you were there. I think you guys are about the same age. Okay, I'll have to look him up. Yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to listen to that conversation because he talked fondly about his time at UMass, and he actually came from Illinois where he went to high school. Uh, and he was like very similar, like, description to you he's like i i got there and i was like this is the greatest place this is the greatest place in the world yeah and we had had a blast and it was for me specifically because i went to a small mostly white high school mm-hmm. when i got to umass it was like a whole city and i was yeah. like oh wow i'm back i'm back to the city i'm back to seeing people of color again yeah so it was fun let's put a pin in that because i definitely want to talk about it but i want to go back to your experience in high school running track so having played yeah. ball sports before that joining the track team your junior year shattering all these records your senior year i mean just showing a lot of promise in the sport what was it like for you going from that team sport environment to a track team which is a team but it's all you once you're on the starting line and yeah. how did 
that sit with you? How did, how did it land coming from that team sports environment? Uh, that first year, I don't quite remember that first year as much. Uh, it was definitely me being just kind of just filling it out, trying everything. I did long jump, triple jump, high jump, 100, 200, 400, 4x4, four by 4x1. Four, four by uh, and uh, what I do remember is how much fun I enjoyed, how much fun I had on those 4x1 and 4x4 four four teams. Uh, and then my senior year, I, I was a captain. So and, and I and I and it felt very much like a team because it was myself and another one of our co-captains. Um, he was a distance runner, uh, probably like an 800 runner, and I call it distance, a 1500 runner maybe. Um, and uh, and we, I kind of feel, felt felt like a team, you know, for the most part. Uh, I was I was fast, and so like I was supported by the team, and I felt like I led I led the team well, and and so it felt like a team. It didn't really feel. I don't, I'm not like remembering it feel feeling like a uh, a solo sport, and I never really thought about that. You know, how did running make you feel at the time? To just once you were in a race, like it was all yeah. you, like you were, yeah, okay. you were in control of it. I'd love to yeah. dig into that aspect of it a little bit more with you. It's a feeling that I, you know, that I think about quite often actually, because it was like uh, exhilarating, um, like coming out of those blocks. Be, being in the moments right before the gun goes off, being still and present. And I think I, I tried to chase that through meditation and through, and, and I, it's hard to put into words what that feeling is when mm-hmm. it's like you, the blocks, and the gun, and then coming out of the blocks. And it's like those races are so, are so short. You know, they're, show, they're so short and they end so fast. And so, uh, and I was good at it. And so it felt great. And it, it, it just felt like I was on top of the world. Uh, and I won a lot. And so that always felt really great. I do remember losing in, 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 to, a couple of, to a couple of people who, were, who ended up going to play, you know, football at Georgetown and, you know, we're track, Jamaican track stars that came from Jamaica. We lost at Penn Relays really badly. Um, and just being like, maybe I can probably be a little faster though. I hadn't learned anything. Like I was, I had run track two seasons, didn't do any training. And so I was, it never really like, I was never down about losing. It was always like, I can do this. I can be better. And so, um, and now thinking back when I was coaching and, and being a pacer a few years ago, that feeling of being so present and in the moment hitting splits coaching and, and, and motivating others is, is very similar to how that feeling is of being present on that block, on a starting block. As a sprinter at the time, what were your perceptions of the distance runners or distance running in general? Yeah, oh, crazy. <laughs> I don't know why people did it. Like, why would you run more than one lap uh, on the track? Or, and I never even considered cross country. Like, I just probably never watched the meet never they, i just watched them run into the woods and then come back later uh so i just i just thought it was wild i don't know i and especially because i never saw it growing up right mm-hmm. like and i talk about this a lot actually saying the reasons why we're intentional about where we run is because there are kids waking up in dorchester that are not seeing people running like the kids who are growing up and, and, and waking up in brookline that's normal to them 
it wasn't normal for me to see someone running outdoors and not sprinting. <laughs> uh, and so it's just something that I thought was just wild to me. Yeah. Let's dig into that a little bit further. Growing up in Dorchester as a young kid, active in ball sports, like what did you see growing up when you were in your neighborhood? I mean, uh, in, in the years that I spent a lot of time out on the, on the street, uh, a lot of, you know, stickball, uh, uh, rollerblading, uh, kickball, and this is, I'm talking cement. We're playing on cement. Football, uh, basketball with crates. You remember the crates? Oh, yeah. You put a crate up. You know, we actually even played, my brother and I even played like stick hockey or, um, or yeah, is it, it's called, what is it called? Not rollerblade, but like when you just literally run with your feet. But with, with Just a, like street hockey. Yeah. Yeah. Street hockey. Yeah. Street hockey. Uh, and so we played all of those sports and we spent a lot of time outside, like majority of our day we spent outside playing in our small fenced in front. And then if we went outside the gate, we would, you know, would run in the street. You know, I don't remember, you know, car cars didn't drive as fast. Yeah. It was just safer to be out there. And then when it got dangerous, uh, we, we just went to school and we'd play. That's when I started picking up the more organized sports. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I was just very active in, in that way. Yeah. That sounds similar to how I grew up in Wessex. I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house and yeah. they live just off of Shrewsbury Street, which is crazy to see when I go back now, yeah. how that's changed over the last 30 years or so. Because another like very diverse neighborhood, you had a lot of people who came from Italy, um, settled into that neighborhood. And in more recent years, a lot of folks who've come from Brazil, there are a lot of folks who have come from China or Vietnam, and it's definitely diversified in, mm. in that way. And we spent our time outside the same way. Like we played a lot of baseball down at Mount Carmel Church. We'd go yeah. to East Park and we'd play pickup basketball. Um, I remember even playing like tennis with, um, we didn't have rackets. We used actually like pots, like you know, we'd, we'd have the handle of like a pot and we would play tennis, like just out, so in front, heavy. <laughs> just out in front, in front of the building that, you know, my, my grandparents owned and lived in. Um, yeah. like we just did all that stuff outside and, you know, as a, as a, a white guy too, but being in the city, like I never saw people running. I never knew that, that it was a thing until I was in high school and I still didn't really know that it was a thing, but I had a coach at, a basketball camp that I went to said, you should run cross country in the fall to keep in shape for basketball. And it kind of all, you know, started from there. But I love hearing stories like that because I think it's going to to show what we'll talk about here in a little bit, how you you can't do what you don't see. Um, mm -hmm. And you 100%. don't even, you don't even know that it's a possibility for you unless you see other people around you doing it. And mm -hmm. I know that that's the experience for a lot of people who grow up in an inner city type of environment. And, you know, aside from whatever, you know, races make up a, an area, it's just accessibility to places to run, um, you know, yes. parks and, and safe areas where, you know, you can go out and not be looked at funny, not feel like someone's gonna, you know, come after you. Um, and not to spoil the rest of this conversation for people listening to this, I mean, that's really what you aim to do where you're from in Dorchester is to make this something, this being being running, something that 
people see in their neighborhood and see that it's a possibility for them. So I appreciate you sharing just your your roots in that um, because yeah. you really helped to to bring something to a place that wasn't there before. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. After your time at UMass, you mentioned earlier how you went to work, you had an accounting degree, had a good job, drove a nice car. Like, how were you thinking about life at that point? Like in your in your early twenties. I mean, I grew up with no money, so now I had a little bit of money. So it was a lot of it was a lot of hanging out, a lot of spending, a lot of money. Just uh, sometimes I think about how much money I spent if I had just saved a little bit. But I, you know, I just enjoyed being <clears throat> being back in the city you know, being able to, to afford things. I actually saw South Boston for the first time. I had never seen South Boston and we share Columbia road, like South mm-hmm. Boston and Dorchester share Columbia road. But to go back to how segregated the city is, is like, I didn't go into South Boston as a kid. Like you get into fights going over there. Um, uh, and so like I'd explored, I went and saw different parts of the city. Like I, I got to know the back Bay a little bit more. I, and so um, I kind of just enjoyed being a young fresh out of college youth with some money in the city. Uh, and, uh, and I played a lot of intramural sports, uh, basketball with the homies, uh, until I tore my knee up, <laughs> uh, soccer, I actually tore my, my knee playing soccer post-college. So, but it was a lot of that type of stuff. Um, and, and hanging out. How did running come into the picture? Yeah. So yeah, running was a bit later in my twenties. So 27, I think it was 27, 26, 27. So like I mentioned, I tore my knee up playing basketball, soccer. I had torn up playing soccer. And so I lost a step. I never got back to how fast I was because that's what, that's what I was good at, you know, being quick on, on the basketball court, on the soccer field. That's basically, um, that's basically it. Uh, and once I lost that, um, it was like I wasn't ever like feeling as competitive or as good as I was in those sports. And then what I started to realize, what I started to realize, because I was also going through a transition in my uh, kind of my work life, because I started, you know, realizing I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be at, at this firm. I didn't want to do this work. Uh, and I ended up creating a music festival. So I had quit my job to become an entrepreneur in creating music festivals. Because when I was traveling with PwC, I would go to different cities and I'd see all these music events. And I was like, why can't we do this in Boston? Came home, tried it. That didn't go well, failed. And so I found myself like quit my high paying job. Uh, the, 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 the thing I was chasing failed. And then now I can't like, I can't even like enjoy running. I'm sorry, enjoy playing sports anymore. So yeah. I was kind of lost. I was lost in identity. I was trying to figure out what, what I was going to do next. And, uh, and I was in a tough space in terms of like, not knowing what was next. And I was walking down Newberry Street. And I don't know if you know Jarek Walker. I don't. So Jarek, uh, huge running personality. He most, More recently, he hosted the um, TSP. the okay. uh, Speed Project. Yeah, the Speed Project, yep. Uh, so Jarek was working for Nike at the time, and they launched the Nike Run Club. Yeah. And I walked by, and I was like, Jarek, you running? Like, what are you doing? And he was like running and enjoying it and having fun. And I was like, what? I got to, let me think about this. So like, I think the second or third time I walked by him having fun running, I was like, maybe I'll try this. Mm -hmm. And so I picked up running because I saw another black man running. I just never thought it was possible or something not possible. I just never considered it. Yeah. And so 
that's why I got into running at, at a time when I was probably, you know, dealing with a lot. And then I just kind of I fell in love with it. Like that first couple of weeks, oh, it sucked. I hated it so much. But people were so nice, uh, and the community was 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 very um, was very dope to be a part of. And it was like perfect timing for me. Something I needed something, and I, and I found running. I imagine too, as someone who was a competitive sprinter previously, and <laughs> yeah. obviously you knew that you jacked up your body, and not that you were sprinting, but you know couldn't play soccer, couldn't play basketball like you wanted. The thought of distance running, I don't want to say be repulsive at that point, but you're like I, I. Aside from never seeing another black man doing this, like I just couldn't see myself doing this because, as you said earlier, why would someone run more than one lap on yeah, the track? Yeah, I really didn't understand. Jarek was like, he made it so much fun. Yeah, Jarek made it so much fun. He told jokes, he ran, and then they were taking pictures. They were letting you try things, right? And I was like, okay, I'll do this. And then, like, I would run, and then people would be beating me and smiling and being so nice. And I was like, I'm trying to beat you. Like, why are you trying? Why are you being nice to me? Like. So that was my next question. Then, Did you see it as a competitive thing? At first, of course. Yeah. Come on, of course. Of course. Can't I take the like, competitor out of the athlete. No, it was but I was getting my uh I was getting my butt kicked. Yeah. I was getting my butt kicked by people who I didn't ever thought would ever beat me in something physical like a sport. And I was just like, man, this is tough. I got I got to learn what I'm doing here. And I fell so deep into it that I ran a marathon that first year. Wow. Which marathon? The Chicago Marathon. Okay. Uh, and I, but this is, I ran my first marathon my first year running, not knowing much about running, right? I just was like, I actually was a heel striker for some, some odd reason. Because I, because I was a sprinter so much and I sprint on my toes, mm -hmm. I just thought, like, when you slow down, you got to run. Yeah. You got to run like this. So I was a heel striker. And then a couple of years later, I, I, I moved over to uh, a, uh, as a four foot striker. But, but even with that, I've taught myself how to bounce too much because mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm still figuring out my form. So I, was, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm uh, I'm just this week. I got some new inserts because of all the bounciness. Have I've added pressure points to my feet, uh, and so like I'm learning to run. I'm still learning how to distance run. Seven yeah. years later. Well, I, I mean. I'm not surprised by that because as a, a sprinter, something that is just so short, it is so intense and you are just like up on your toes, ripping it. I mean, hearing you say that you became a heel striker as, as a coach, like the coach in me is not surprised by that because then you go to the opposite end of the spectrum. You're like, well, if I'm this fast and I got to slow it way down, then I almost like over, like a lot of people overcorrect. And then you've kind of yes. got to find, you know, that happy medium because you don't want to be too bouncy. That's inefficient, but you also don't want to be like back on your heels and just yeah. dragging yourself. You want to, you want to find that kind of like, you know, that happy, that happy place. And it can take some time. I mean, even, yeah. you know, seven years is a lot of time, but it, it's really not when you're trying to retrain, you know, motor patterns and foot strike and all of that type of stuff. Yeah. And I just started that like, uh, because the, the foot, the, the foot sores that became pressure points, Yeah, they started 2021, mm -hmm. summer of 2021. And then I got a second one this summer, like earlier this, like uh, right before the summer started, or I guess early spring. And so now I'm like, all right, I guess I got to change it again. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's been a journey for sure. How did running make you feel in that first year? Once you became a little bit more comfortable with it, you were doing it regularly, you found this group that you enjoyed spending time with, like, did it spill into other areas of your life just in terms of like how you felt on like a day-to-day -day basis or did it flip when you actually put the shoes on and went out and run? 
Uh, it definitely helped kind of, so I found it at a time when I was kind of lost mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, but it helped me find kind of, um, it just helped me build discipline mm-hmm. back into my life. It helped me, uh, build character. Those long runs, <laughs> those early long runs, you know, training for that first marathon, it was like adversity. You learn a lot about it. yourself. So much. I, I was having conversations with myself. And that's probably the reason why I fell in love with running was because of what it did to my mind, mostly. Not my body. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, I, I've always been fairly fit and, and active. But it was what it did to my mind that really was transformational. Um, because going from a, a low point, uh, a low point where I just didn't know what I was doing to now being able to then be creative again. And, and then so then after I got into running, I actually got into uh, uh, be, got into tech and I worked for a startup and I was growing in that company and then I, I created you know then I was okay now I found this running thing and it's really making me excited of course as an entrepreneur I'm like what can I do and so I created Pioneer's Run Crew so like running is the reason why I did all of that right because of what it did to me at that point of your journey in running were you commuting for lack of a better term from Dorchester, where you're living, into, let's just call it downtown, Boston, yeah. Newbury Street area, wherever it was that the Nike crew or whatever other clubs that you were meeting up with were starting from? Yes. I like to say I used to run, I used to drive, bike, or take the train two to three miles just to run two to three miles. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so running in my neighborhood was just not anything I did. And when I did start running in my neighborhood, because I had to train for the marathon, my wife would police what I wore <laughs> because she was like, you can't wear those tights here. You wear those downtown. But those running tights, don't wear them over here. <laughs> right? So it was like not normal. Um, and, and so, yeah, and, and I got tired of that commute. And I also got tired of being one of the pe- few people of color kind of in that running space. Mm-hmm. And... What were those next steps that you started to describe a little while ago where, you know, that that entrepreneurial um, switch flipped in your mind and you were like, all right, I'm commuting a few miles just to run a few miles. There aren't people running in Dorchester where I'm from. Like, help me bridge that gap there. Yeah. Uh, So I essentially got into running and became – so I became a pacer. Right, so because I had quit my job, and I had picked up running, and I was unemployed, uh, I was running a lot, and then so then they asked me to become a pacer, and to become a pacer at the time you had to work for Nike. So I got a nine to five, uh, an hourly job at Nike, and I became a pacer, and then Dan Fitzgerald for the Heartbreakers, yeah, um, Heartbreaker Heartbreak Hill Running Company, he tapped me to become a running coach. Uh, and, and taught me, you know, what I know about run, being a running coach. And I coached in the studio. So I became a studio coach at the Heartbreak Hill Running Studio. Oh, the treadmill studio. The treadmill studio. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I was a coach there. And then I was like, you know, like people love what I'm doing. They, they're commenting. Oh, it looks like, you know, like my friends and family. I'm like, come over, come run with me. They'll come here and there. But they just, just never – because – we don't ever grow up going, leaving our neighborhoods. Like if you grow up here, you don't really leave to go downtown unless you're going to shop or you're going, you know, you're not going to go spend time in a neighborhood that you're not, you don't feel welcomed in. And so I was like, A, 
I want more people of color doing this with me. B, if this is what running did to my life, imagine what it could do to folks who really need it mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the areas uh, that, that are uh, like in the areas where it's not, it doesn't exist. So those are two big factors. Um, and I kind of, I had, we had, I had, I had gotten married. Uh, I had a job now. And so I was, had all this free time on my hands. It was like, you know, we're married, we're just living and we didn't have any kids. And I was like, all right, I think it's time to create something. And it started as like, I'm just going to start running. I'm not going to even give it a name. My wife's like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> You're not going to give it a name. She knows, she knows you, <laughs> she, man. <laughs> she knows me. She's like, remember when you said you were just going to just run on Wednesdays? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was very interesting. But so actually a year before we started Pioneers Run Crew or two years before we started Pioneers Run Crew, we had actually created Unnamed Run Crew, which I don't know if it even exists anymore here in Boston. But like uh, we found Unnamed Run Crew. That didn't really work out. I left that. And then two years later, I created Pioneers Run Crew. But Unnamed, I didn't really still didn't really know about what kind of like building the community was about. It wasn't until I went to D.C. and saw a district running collective out in D.C. that I was like, oh, wow, okay. Then I came home. I was like, I think I'm gonna start running on Wednesdays in Dorchester because, like, I had like now I had seen it being done. I had known I wanted to do something, and so then I was like, all right, this is what I'm gonna do. I have kind of a blueprint now. So the five year anniversary of Pioneers Run Crew is coming up this weekend, as of this conversation yeah. that yep. we're having. What was that first run that kicked it off? That first run was probably it was. I remember it. It was me, my brother. My wife's cousin, I think mine might have been there too. It was like four or five of us. Mm-hmm. It was like posted on Instagram. It's like, hey, meet at this bar. We're going to run to the track. And so I had like learned, because obviously I was I was a pacer, so I had seen kind of how the pacing kind of network worked. And so it was like, you know, send emails, take pictures, send pictures, post on social, lead a workout, warm up, cool down, all that. So that's how it started. How did it grow? That first summer, because it was so novel, and it was like, oh, Sid's been doing this over there. Now he's doing it here. Let's go check it out. It was like, it was huge. But looking back at those photos, it was like people would show up in like Jordans and, you know, uh, uh, Air Force Ones, basketball shorts, sweatshirts, like cotton sweatshirts tied up across. Because it's like when, when you're not a runner and you don't know anything about running, you find the oldest pair of shoes you have. You put on some heavy clothes because you think you got to sweat it out. And so like, you just, that's what you look like. And so that, those first, that first summer into the winter, uh, because the winter, no one, no one came. It was over after, right. <laughs> once it got warm. It was like, first off, it's hard enough getting black people running. Then you put the winter part in it. It was like, mm-hmm. those, it was fell off. It was like five of us through that first winter. But um, it was actually really exciting that first summer. Um, yeah. It's I'm I'm laughing as you're describing that because even though my my entry point was different, like I wasn't a runner, someone who grew up around running. I was told to run cross country to keep in shape for basketball. And I showed up that first week at cross country practice. I had these, I can't remember the name of them, but you'll remember the shoe. It was a Nike basketball shoe, and it just said air in big yes. letters, like oh A-I-R, yes. from the heel all the way down. <laughs> Look, I had yes. my and one basketball shorts on and a headband around my head and okay, I, I might I might have even had a wristband or two as well because that's just wow. what I wore when I yeah, yeah, you know yeah. when I played basketball and for me like this was a means to an end like this I'm running 
cross country because Coach Jim White told me to run cross country to keep in shape for basketball. I didn't see it as like a thing on its own. I didn't yeah. know that you had to wear running shoes. I didn't know that like proper running shorts, which I fought for at least two, three years, <laughs> were, were shorter than your typical like, you know, basketball shorts. Um, so I can – You would have fit in perfectly. You would have you fit in perfectly with that first year of Pioneers Run Crew. You got the sweatbands, the headband. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. But I think that speaks to – I think that speaks to – like just just running in people's perception of it um yeah. because if you don't grow up around it you just you just don't know um yeah. you know you're like well i'll run with i'll run with what i got um and then you realize like oh well it's not that comfortable to run in a pair of high tops or my shorts are yeah. falling down all the time when i'm <laughs> you know when i'm like two three miles into a run and they're just like soaked with sweat and then you start thinking like there's got to be like a you know a better way for this which um i don't want to go there quite yet but i mean that that'll segue into what you've created with pioneers streetwear yeah yeah, eventually yeah, but yeah. i'm i'm like really into the the start of pioneers run crew so when did you slap the name on it when did you call it pioneers run crew was that from the beginning or did it come a little while later it, it definitely came early on i would say within a month and a half two months okay uh and i think it was a mixture of so one of my running friends actually one of our coaches uh brennan bonner coach b he he was he's he ran in college and so like we had worked together and when i um so right when i left college i actually spent one year and i worked at the epiphany middle school where i went as a kid mm -hmm. that kind of changed my trajectory and just to kind of give back and be the first graduate to come back and teach and bonner that's where i met brennan bonner and but he was always a runner he would just go out and run you know, through Dorchester. He's probably one of the few people who ran in Dorchester. White guy um, running through Dorchester. Yeah, white guy, yeah. Did he run for Greater Boston Track Club? He did. That's yeah. where I know him from. Okay, <laughs> I was like, I know this guy. Carry yeah, on. he did, he did. And, uh, and, um, and he, he, he listened to what I wanted to do, and he was like, have you heard of Ted Corbett? And then, that was the first time I heard of Ted Corbett. And then, uh, and then, Jarek Walker, who had initially got me into running, he I think he, he hadn't moved to LA yet. He was in a, probably in the process of moving to LA. He asked me, hey, like, have you heard of Ted Corbett? And so the, when that that kind of happened weeks apart. So I started reading about Ted Corbett and, you know, what he did for running and learned about the New York Pioneer Club. Mm. I was like, huh, the first integrated sports club in all of America, the New York Pioneer Club. We are pioneers, pioneers run crew. I was wondering if that was the inspiration or one of the inspirations for it, because the first time I became aware of Pioneers Run Crew, that was the first thought that came to mind, because yeah. it's it's an old club, the New York Pioneer, Pioneer Club. I mean, that was founded in 1936, and Ted Corbett was yeah. a, a pivotal figure in that. And I mean, the New York yeah. Pioneer Club was, I mean it says right on the website, if you find it on New York Roadrunners, it was a product of the black middle class. Um, yeah. But it was, you know, it was a club that was open to any young man that wanted to join at the mm -hmm. time. And when when I saw what you had started to create or heard about it, I was like, man, there's a lot of parallels here. Yeah. So it was very intentional. Um, I love and it. we always pay homage to the work that they do. They did because they created an integrated space, right? Before the NFL, before the NBA, before the MLB, they were open to any young man who wanted to run or be a part of a sports club. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it was like, you know, we're just keeping that 
work alive through our running community because we are an inclusive running space. Yeah. And we will also always be that inclusive kind of space. Yeah. Let's fast forward to one year into Pioneer's run crew. Um, aside from the winter lull where you lost a lot of, of people, but when spring, Everyone. summer rolled around after at the end of that first year and things started to kick back up again, or at least it got nicer to be outside moving around, what did things look like? Was there a renewed interest in it? Did you have people asking you if you were going to start things back up again or if you were still going? Like, you know, help me, help me to understand that. Yeah. So I felt, we always felt like to keep it, to keep something, to keep something fun and exciting that's like running related, we have to do something new. Like we have to do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we ended up signing with Puma to to sponsor the team. And that was actually my first experience as to why I then ended up running, creating my own running apparel company. It's because of my experience, my initial experience with the people there. It's way different now. Um, the Puma team that's running whatever they're doing is different from what when I was with them mm-hmm. early on. Um, so part of that was like, all right, you know, like we got to keep it cool. I think people will think it's cool if we were associated with this bigger brand. Um, and so like, I think that helped a little bit. Like we were like, oh, we're, you know, we're sponsored by Puma. Uh, and so then, but it, it, never, it never, after that first summer, it didn't get as big for a couple of years um, because that novelty died down. But we steadily grew. What we start, what we started to learn, we started weeding out the people who just came to one run a week and just didn't do anything else. Mm. <laughs> because if you just run one time a week, you're always just going to be just as bad as you were last week. Right. And we were, and I learned because in the beginning I had to like lead the front, bring up the back, motivate people, you know. And so it it just got tiring. And I was like, you know what? I think you know we need to be more intentional about like actually not holding everyone's hand like if you want to do this you got to learn how to do this we're all adults here right um so i think the people who really just hated running just fell out and then we started kind of maintaining and building and as you see who's coming and you're like oh, i need help let's start tapping people to to lead to be leaders on the team and then they bring in their ideas and then they bring in kind of some structure uh and we just steadily grew little by little and we were we were always operated outside of what the running community in like downtown or in Back Bay, the BAA, we just never considered anything that they did. We just did our own thing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and yeah, it was you know slow growth, fun growth. You learn a lot. You know, was there ever a point along the way where it just hit you that oh shit, like this this is this is like a, a thing now. Like it's it's got momentum. Like. People are, you know, relying on 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 me or just like Pioneers Run Crew as a whole every week or or a few times a week to meet up to get them out to keep them moving yeah. to keep them on track. Yeah, I think I would say probably the st- going through that second winter is probably when it started to feel like that. And then you also get to see people who are moving into the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and then they find in the community, and then. When you start hanging out outside of of the running, and then when you start celebrating and mourning together, that's when I think it gets really interesting. Where like you see the support and the love it becomes a family. It becomes such a family, and for someone who grew up in a big family, and my wife has such a big family, like we never really like sought out people outside of those those family communities mm-hmm. because we're just so big, so many of us. 
but Pioneers Run Crew became that family that was at all of my holidays, right? There were at, all the parties were at my house. Uh, they were celebrating my birthdays. And, and so it just became like this thing that it just took a life of its own, took on a life of its own. And I've always been intentional about, you know, I think people start things and they want it for certain reasons. And it's about them. And it's about like what their vision is for the whole thing. And yeah, I obviously have a vision for it. But I think what makes us special and makes the community strong and continue to grow is because I let go and let the community form and be what it is. Pioneers Run Crew is whoever shows up. It's who comes, it's who runs, it's who's there. There are times where people come who used to run with us two or three years ago, and they're like, oh, Pioneers Run Crew changed. I'm like, of course, you weren't here to make it go wherever you want it to go. Of course it changed. It changes for whoever's here. Um, but we are, the one thing I would say is we're very intentional on how it changes and, and kind of the trajectory because of who we put in leadership and where we choose to run, right? Like, we make sure that that's important, that that kind of stays consistent. Because um, very easily, this can be a group that, when people move into Dorchester, because it's you know it's gener it's uh, gentrifying, it could be like taken over. Like mm -hmm. it can be because then you got really good runners who come in, and you put them if you if you put them in leadership and 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 I could always see the potential for losing kind of that initial reason why we started. So we're very intentional about making sure that that doesn't happen. But outside of that, we just let it shine. How has it? changed or evolved over the past five years yeah we're runner runners now <laughs> what do you That's mean what, what do you say. mean by that before it was like we never talked about workouts we never talked about you know marathons mm -hmm. and registering for this race and traveling to that it was just like you know oh the dot day 5k is the, 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 is the Dorchester race. We're going to do that. We might do the, the C5K, like the fun ones, but we were never really like a competitive team. Now we probably had like 10 or 15, no, I'm sorry, like 10 to 12 Boston Marathon runners, people who qualified and raised money this year. And then when you think of all the other races we do, we went to Miami this past year and we were like 40 deep. So we travel as a team and we're runners now. Like before it was like people who might have liked running, but now it's like we're... It's really weird when I do say that, that we're runner runners because that's what people say about us, like the people who used to come. So I'd say it changed that way. What I will say that has not changed is kind of the in, being intentional about um, about uh, kind of why we exist, where we run, the reasons we run in these neighborhoods. And then the people you put in leadership, like our leadership are, consists of people who never ran before joining Pioneers Run Crew. Other than me, no one on our leadership team has run um, like – with like another team or like they didn't have an experience of coming from like what another running community looks like. Yeah. We just built our own. And so I think having those people who are bigger body, not the fastest, like having those people in leadership, make sure that I think it makes sure that we don't lose the reasons why we exist versus just putting the fastest person on. What's the makeup of the crew? Like breakdown, male, female, the different races that are involved, mm -hmm. age range, and is everyone living in Dorchester or are people coming from outside the neighborhood just to mm -hmm. run with you guys and experience a part of Boston that even though it is the most populous and diverse neighborhood in Boston, certainly as far as, as running goes is underrepresented but also just underexplored. Yeah. 
Underappreciated. And underappreciated. <laughs> so we're a very diverse group of people. Um, we So from an age standpoint, we probably just under 60 on the high mm -hmm. end. And I would say probably 24 to 25, maybe, yeah, 24 to 25 on the young end. Um, it's probably 65, 70% women, uh, if not a little higher. Um, and we have very like a very diverse group of from an ethnicity standpoint i mean even like on our leadership team like we like so we have like captains and we have capitos which is a kind of like uh uh we're still figuring out what that capito kind of but when we first like launched the capitos it was the middle of covid and we needed more leaders to kind of lead smaller groups but just thinking through the ethnicities on all of our groups you know um it's represented probably like five or six different ethnicities um and probably i i, I don't even know I, I don't necessarily think about think about how um like from a diverse ethnicity wise standpoint how many there might be like yeah. how many different kind of um throughout the group but we have a lot of different ones yeah what's a typical turnout to one of your runs during the week and or on the weekend so right now we are doing something called the deer summer tour where we we run different the different neighborhoods. So every Wednesday we meet in a different part of Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, JP, and we look, we see about sixty five to seventy people. Love it on, on those Wednesday nights. Yeah, during COVID, when there wasn't not anything to do, we'd see a lot of people. Like we, <laughs> a lot of people. Did you have to limit it at all because of COVID? So yeah, Early so on? we actually moved all of our runs to uh, Franklin Park, and then we would put groups because the city ordinance was 25 or smaller yeah that's what i was wondering so then we would put groups of 25 like one mile 25 three mile 25 five mile 25 seven mile 25 and that's where we we brought on additional leadership because we, we can't do all of this um so that's what we did and we grew a lot during the during those times too yeah has it stayed relatively stable now that we're kind of over the worst of the restrictions very interesting. Um, so actually, I'm gonna, I forgot to answer one of your questions, which is where do people come from? Mm -hmm. They come from all over, but mostly people live in Dorchester, the majority of people. And the people who do try to come from far, it's like, we understand you can't make it. The reason why we exist is because we wanted to create something for people in Dorchester. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's stuff for you in other cities. I'm sorry, in other parts of, this, of the city. Um, but we've, we're going through this interesting feel. I think everyone's feeling it. We were, We all just came out of the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic super busy that's just so much going on yeah so there's we i don't i don't know how to explain i don't see the attention that we had before but there's still the support there like boston marathon weekend was massive it, it felt like we were on top of the world right in terms of people coming and being a part of our events then as soon as that was over and maybe it was because we were all burned out like it was really hard to see where people were and if they were paying attention to what we were doing um so we're still figuring out like how like how big we are mm -hmm. you know where are you running specifically you just mentioned franklin park and i was curious about that because for an underappreciated place being dorchester for runners i mean franklin park is right there and that is yeah. arguably and i'm biased because i grew up in the area the most famous cross-country course in the world yeah and it's right there um not far for you guys to just hop on over there and and run 
some laps. Yeah. So Franklin Park is very interesting because it touches four different yeah. neighborhoods, three three or four different neighborhoods. So um, Mattapan, Dorchester, Roxbury, and JP. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted to see black people running in Boston, you go to you go to Franklin Park because that's where people they go to Franklin Park to walk and run just around the the, the golf course. Mm-hmm. It's like a two point two mile loop around the golf course. That's where people. That's where black people go to run and walk and active. Um, and so we were intentional about being over there, showing those people like, hey, we can also run over here though. We can run in the street. We can run down Blue Hill Ave, Columbia Road. Um, but we we run there a lot. We don't love running there anymore because it's we want to be seen, right? We want to be in the street. We want to be where people can see us because if you go in, over there, you're only it's it's you're kind of tucked away. You're running you're running around who are people who are already active. And our goal is to get more people active. And so although we did run there during COVID a lot, um, we now we're back to running in the neighborhoods. And so, like I mentioned, we're we're doing the Dare Summer Tour. We'd pick a park in one of those neighborhoods, and then we'd run from that park and we'd take the streets into into the neighborhood, and then back. Yeah. How do you keep the energy? high with one all the things that you're involved in but also as this enters you know the next five years of its existence and it's grown and it's and it's grown in a good way it's different than it was before but it's still you know providing a lot of benefits for a lot of people like how do you keep your energy up for it (sighs) it's tough i'm not gonna lie it's tough i think it's 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 realizing and seeing that these as we age that different people have different priorities and, and things change in life people have kids um and and you start to see the shift in, in people who used to be so super dedicated that they just can't be so it's seeing that early enough and putting those people who are who are a bit younger maybe uh who bring that energy and that can then continue to bring that energy into the group so we'll add a captain who you know has some fresh ideas or uh, or people who join and just so vibrant and, and it means so much to them. We give those people opportunities, or at least we try to, for them to bring that. Because, I mean, thinking of the next five years, it's like, I got another son. I got another kid on the way. Um, Congratulations. And thank you. I haven't told anyone that. <laughs> so you just, you, I'm off social media. Well, you just told several thousand people through this podcast. Yeah. I, and I'm off social media because I needed a break after a long time. I think we talked about this too, like social media. We could talk about that, but I do want to so talk I'm, about I'm taking that. a break from social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> taking a break from social media. Um, but the energy, it's it's like you know, it's it's tough because now I have to focus on building the business, right? Because this is kind of like how I make my money. Pioneers Run Crew is a community that I do not monetize. I wanted to keep it that way, and I've created a business to to make a living. So like. It's really identifying and, and having a foresight to, to put the right people in, in, uh, in leadership to kind of continue it. But what I love about what we do is everyone's so passionate and we'll, we'll like, I don't make, I don't make decisions without there being pushback yeah. from, from, from leadership on like why we need to do things and we keep it fresh. What I admire about what you've built from afar is, is this was your idea and you created something that fulfilled the need for you to be able to run with other people in your own neighborhood, a place that is not known for running. But in the five years that it's been in existence, you've made it bigger than yourself. And not that you have any plans to 
step away, but as you focus your energy on your family, on your business, on these various other things, you don't necessarily, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but don't necessarily need to be involved because you've handed off a lot of those responsibilities and now you've established yourself in the neighborhood and there might be new people who join who don't know that Sid Baptista started Pioneers Run Crew. This is just the the crew that exists in their neighborhood yep. and they run the streets and they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Yep. Yeah, you put that very well. A lot well a lot better than I can. Uh and that's very true, you know. Um, and I'm proud of that and I'm excited for that. It's hard to do, man. Then it can grow. Yeah. Then it can grow beyond me, right? Like it's never about, you can go on the Pioneers Run Crew page, you won't see my face because it's not about, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's about what we're doing for the people who live here and whoever's here at the time. Um, and we want that to continue to grow in that way. So it feels good. It's beautiful, man. I got a lot of respect for that. Thank you. I want to pivot and talk about Pioneer Streetwear. That is yeah. your business, your entrepreneurial endeavor yes. and how you make a living. When did the the idea for that just kind of start kicking around in your brain? So as I, I mentioned earlier, it was around the time we, we, we had a uh, we had a partnership with a, another uh, apparel line. <laughs> I've already said the name, so I'll say it, Puma. And we didn't have the best experience back then. Like I, I want to say again, totally different team that was there before actually um just totally look different look i I think at the time they hadn't even had a like a distance running line um i think they just wanted to get into the kind of crew culture Mm -hmm. and but what i saw was that we would be asked to come to set to shoot content with puma and we were the only people that weren't being paid on site um like everyone else was right like the um the uh like the makeup artists the camera people you know you know the the anybody everyone else was except for us and we were the talent and then that was then taken and that content was then taken used to sell product back to us and we just were never a part of the money equation and so i was like i don't like that uh and you know, I, th- I think I'm, that was like 2019, and I started developing a, an idea for like what a brand could look like. Mm-hmm. Because Pioneers Run Crew is just a subset of a greater running culture that's booming around the, the globe of communities of color, like putting some culture into running, our own culture into running. So I was trying to think of like, okay, and then 2020 hit, and everyone was like, Sid, how are you doing this? How are you like getting people? of color out and running you're building such great community like and i was like well you know i would love to talk to you but i don't want to be in your campaigns i don't want to be a part of um like a marketing campaign or influencer for you like i want to learn how to make product because i thought i have the community i have the culture uh i just need to learn how to make clothes and i can create this brand and then we can own we can have some ownership Right, I like to say ownership over influence. Like I've been an influencer, mm-hmm. that doesn't bring you anything, right? Ownership is what matters, and so that's when it started. Like thinking of like, all right, I got to figure out how to make product. It's like the Damon John Fubu model. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, you know, I, I listen. Probably read a lot about him. I, I picked up um, Shoe Dog. I was reading that as I was launching the company. Um, so very, you have to like get yourself into that mindset. And so, yeah. So basically it was like, I need to learn how to make product. 
I found a product person uh, who was very helpful. And then it was like, but you still have to build a brand. You know, you have to build a brand that people want to support. And, and then, um, yeah. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And it was 2020 and there were a lot of people sitting at home uh, with some free time. And so I got some designers who were not working yet, or who were like kind of home during the pandemic and so yeah that's how that's how i got kicked off and and i just saw how other brands were doing it like local boston-based brands were growing online i was like i can do this too how did you want to differentiate pioneer streetwear from not just those other brands in boston but just bigger running brands in general yeah so i i saw a couple things um i saw a gap in the market where it was like brands weren't building for bigger bodies specifically like thicker thighs you know like i'm west african and of you know and my thighs are just i just got thicker thighs you know i'm i'm a fit i'm a, i'm fit and but i have thicker thighs like the shorts i remember buying a pair of running shorts that gq called the best running shorts and they just would not fit my thighs and i was like if if i'm a runner i'm a marathoner i'm this running leader and these don't fit me then how are they going to fit the people that i that i run you know that i coach mm -hmm. with or that I that I kind of lead for or or, uh, or influence or whatever you want to call it, uh, and I was like, so it was really mo it was very much creating product that so that was the first part it was like that fit bigger bodies, broader shoulders, thicker thighs, wider hips, bigger busts, the people we were serving in my running community, mm -hmm. and then the other part of it was, was pioneers run crew is so vibrant, we're loud, we're obnoxious, we're fun. Running apparel wasn't doing that. It was just like muted. It's like, we don't want to be muted. So how do we bring that culture into the apparel too? So, um, you know, big, big logos, <laughs> which I don't know if help, help or hurt us, but big logos. Um, uh, we have like this, we have this tag that we put on the back of our shirts. That, that's kind of like got a little streetwear vibe on it, yeah. right? I, yeah, you have one of the shirts. So yeah, it's, 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 kind of it's weird, a little like yellow works tag right in the back there yeah yeah it's like uh uh yeah it's uh i forget i forget what it's called it's how much i know about product um and it was just like one of those things where it's like we want to make it fashionable and we want to make it fit and it needs to perform really well mm -hmm. it needs to be able to run in i mean you've ran in one of our shirts what do you think yeah i i like it a lot i mean i have it i picked it up at the boston marathon pop-up shop that you guys yeah. had back in april and it is very different from everything that i have and i mean i'm i'm not a big guy but it fits me very well but i saw yeah. like the full range of apparel that you had there at the shop and it was clear to me that you designed it with a wide range of, of people in mind yes. which is which exactly. is hard to do because that means you're carrying you know carrying a lot more skews you're carrying a lot more you know sizes it gets harder to kind of forecast like okay how many do i need like in in this yeah. size but how many do i need in you know in that size but i mean the the one piece of pioneer streetwear that i bought myself at the pop-up shop so i want to support what it is that that you're doing i mean i love it i mean it's a high quality well-constructed fashionable piece of running apparel that fits yeah. me really well that I can tell is going to last for a long time too, which I think is yeah. a, which I think is a not so small detail. Yeah, very much so. Um, and then, so the t-shirts are made of recycled material. So uh, recycled fishing, that's so sustainability being a part of that um, is important for us too. Um, because we know that just being in the apparel industry, when you start to learn about how much waste there is mm -hmm. and what it does, it's like how, okay, how can we potentially, 
<laughs> not be as wasteful um, and be a part of the, the greater, just the bigger conversation around sustainability yeah. too. Do you think it's so. been to your advantage that you didn't have a background in apparel before you launched this? Absolutely. I always say you have to be naive sometimes to, to do things that are impossible um, because you don't know how hard it is, right? If I, I would never go back and do another music festival ever because of how hard and I know how impossible it is to do something like that in the city of Boston. Um, and just like, you know, so you have to, <laughs> so yes, I think the there is an advantage to not knowing what you're doing yeah. sometimes. Um, but being smart enough to find the people who know what they're doing yeah. is, is important though. Yeah. But I think you were able to come in with a vision that was not, let's just say distracted by like previous biases that you had. Well, well, no, yeah. you, I, I can't do this because, you know, it hasn't worked for, you know, other branch. You're like, yeah. well, fuck it. I'm just going to try it and, yeah. you know, see it, see if it works out because I, I think there are people, you know, who would benefit from having like a two XL shirt or more availability yeah. to, to that yeah. type of thing. We still, we definitely still need to work on. So our grading is for bigger bodies, but we definitely need to work on like, a bigger sizing right like we it's hard we i like to say we create running apparel for everybody but the reality is we're so small we have some so little money that it's harder to big to create the bigger skews mm -hmm. but from a grading standpoint you know it fits bigger bodies um but uh but yeah i know it's hard it's still hard yeah. you know like i launched in december had a really good december then january February, march was like horrible like so bad right and but then you start to realize that January, March, January through March are the worst months for e-commerce brands. Yeah. And then we have April and massive success. We opened a pop-up shop on Newberry Street around all of the bigger running brands and we have massive success. And it's like, oh my God, thank God. It's working, it's working, you know? Um, and uh, I don't know, it's very hard. Yeah. It's very hard. I, I love hearing you describe just the genesis behind all of it. And it. you told me a little bit when I met you at the pop-up shop on Newbury Street in Boston on Marathon Weekend. And I think I told you that day about the podcast I recorded with Belota Asmaram and yes. the running shop that he helped open in Oakland, California. And they don't have their own brand, but the brands that they brought into the shop are much smaller brands, but he brought them in because he wanted to serve his community, which is very diverse and also wanted to have apparel for, you know, bigger bodies. He described black women are shaped differently and they need different apparel that feels like yes. it was made for them. And there's a real power yes. to that. Um, yes. And the community that they've created around that, people walk into the shop and say, oh, this feels like a place that exists here for me. The apparel that yes. you're creating, people can look at it and say, oh, this feels like it was created for me. Um, yes. I just think as, as crazy as it sounds to say it out loud, like that was missing from running before. And now it exists in, in different places and hopefully will continue to grow. Yeah. It is wild to, 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 to think that like, you know, as I, as I work through trying to raise money for the company, because you know the reality is you have to do that. There are like, what's the gap in the market? Like, what are you fixing? It was like, running apparel isn't made for black and brown bodies. We are an afterthought in running because only four percent of runners identify as black. Things are not created for communities of color. That's the gap. 
And so how do we do that? And even beyond that, how do we tell our own stories? You know, how do we push our own narrative so that we're not just, you know, being an afterthought or, or, or that people are sharing our narrative of how running is. Um, and so like, we also have to think about that too, right? Like how do we, cause to run a, an apparel line now, you have to really run as a digital storytelling platform. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what people really want. They want, they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to feel connected. Um, to what you're doing. Some of the brands that I love, that's what they do well. And so we have to think through that too. Um, and so thinking through that is like, we need to be creating and evolving this experience, putting people of color in the center, but it's open for everyone, right? Same thing with Pioneer's Run Crew. Like we're open for everyone, but we are specifically created for this demographic. Um, and I, and I would say most running brands are created for a demographic that is not people of color. And so we have to fall into that. Right. And so then other people can fall into kind of what we're creating too. You mentioned other brands that have inspired you. What are some of those brands and how have they inspired you? So one of the brands that inspired me to even like create a running apparel line was Tracksmith because of the storytelling component mm -hmm. and the way that it, their, their content makes you feel, mm -hmm. you know, um, I really love the way that they do that. Um, satisfy running. Yeah. Like, you know, they make it cool. Um, and although it might not identify or anyone, and I, you know, it, the two brands I just mentioned, I don't, I don't identify with those brands, but I love the work that they do. So those are inspiring, obviously, um, as smaller brands that have grown that aren't the big, the big ones, right? The big Nikes and Adidas and, and for sort, um, and so much. And then, and then from, and then when you take it a step outside of running, you go into the streetwear side. That's where I get a lot of inspiration. Um, you know, brands like Fear of God and Essentials, which is Jerry Lorenzo, who just got picked up by Adidas. Um, and when he got picked up by Adidas, I was like, all right, well, what I'm doing is coming because Jerry's going to do it. Like, he's going to take streetwear. He's going to put it into Adidas in a way that I'm potentially trying to do. So, like, for me, it was like, oh, shit, I, like, I know it's like Adidas and, and Jerry, and it sounds crazy for me to talk about that, but... That's how you have to think if you're ever going to be successful. You got to believe in yourself and what you're doing, right? So when I see Adidas picking him up, I'm like, well, streetwear is coming or running. I need to be there first, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then there are other smaller brands um, that like my friends run that aren't necessarily, that don't have like performance kind of fabrics, but like really inspire me um, in, in kind of like the running space. So um, one being never not bootlegging uh, and yeah. I think I get inspiration from a lot of things. I love that. And I love that in running because that's just the space that, that I know. I'm not a fashionable guy, so I'm not as familiar with some of these other um, you know, streetwear first brands. But like thinking about running and the bigger brands, the Nikes, the Adidas's, just these bigger recognizable brands that have been creating product for a long time and still are and still create some very good like performance product. Yeah. I feel like I've never or have had a hard time breaking out of their original mold of, all right, we make mm -hmm. this footwear and apparel for a very narrow band of, of runners, mostly competitive type. Mm -hmm. And then it, it kind of like trickles down or we're like making it for like just the masses, but it doesn't mm -hmm. really have any, you know, personality to it. And just in the mm -hmm. last, let's just say 10 years or so, a lot of these smaller, apparel only brands have popped up because they're like, well, you know, 
the the bigger brands aren't making stuff for us, you know. All right, mm-hmm. we're we're women. They're not making apparel for women. They're just like shrinking it and pinking it. Um, and we're gonna do it ourselves. And you know, mm-hmm. they they have their own style, their own personality, and mm-hmm. their their own loyal fan base and and customers. I mean, what you know, you're you're doing for, like you said, making apparel for black and brown folks who don't really find stuff out there that that's for themselves. Like I love seeing that. It's just like expanding not only the the definition of like what a runner is but just like the the number of archetypes of runners that are out there it's like yeah there's still that like super competitive person i'm one of those people you know and and you're going to make apparel or companies are going to make apparel um and footwear for like that type of person but running is so much more than that um you know and and i think we're seeing that i guess what i'm getting at is we're seeing that reflected in a lot of these smaller brands mostly in apparel and that just didn't exist you know 15 years ago certainly like 20 years ago and it feels to me as someone who's been in this space for a while we're kind of hitting this like tipping point in a way where it's like oh there are people now who are recognizing that running is so much more than this running is so much more than that and i think if we can continue like a long that path it's just going to make the the overall community as a whole like just a lot a lot stronger yeah no i 100 percent agree and i also think that there's there's space for that too like yeah no one wants to be head to toe when it comes specific to apparel no one wants to be head to toe on one brand mm-hmm. like people want to support for different reasons or they want to wear stuff for different reasons people want to identify with different ones right so you know I, i'm of the mindset that there's you know there's enough to go around right so from a competitive standpoint that's how i think yeah. and you know and from a and from a obviously because i have to think this way because i'm in the business there's room for growth yeah. across the board well in one way that i've i've seen evidence of that just in the last few years this happens amongst the smaller brands they're more willing to collaborate with each other on yeah. things rather than compete whereas like you know the the bigger brands like you, you're never going to see like Nike and Adidas collaborate on on something like that's that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah. you know, you see a lot of collaborations amongst you know smaller brands, and it might just be like one or two items, or they co-sponsor an event together. But they're supporting yeah. one another in that way. And I mean, that just like now it seems like kind of normal. You see that pop up in different places. But I mean, as someone who's been in this for a long time, like that was not happening like 15. Yeah years ago like you and you could never think of it happening and because like stuff like that wasn't happening i think it really did like you know just silo running in in a lot of ways and now we're starting to see those silos still exist but we're starting to see them collapse a little bit and i think that's a healthy thing yeah yeah it actually brings up a quick point i want to make well i just remembered something i'm working on is i'd like to have a i don't want to call it cohort or like some sort of collective Mm -hmm of brands that just when we do pop-ups we can pop up in different cities share a space that then has multiple stuff in there that like we can collaborate yeah. across that way right create experiences like what we did in boston was so special and it's kind of our blueprint for what we want to do but in different cities we want to be authentic about it and we want to be collaborative with people who are already there right i don't want to be that brand that just pulls up puts a stake in your city yeah. never had a relationship there like that's not going to be us you know yeah um so like how can we do that and be collaborative about yeah. it and on the other side of that bringing this back to community 
I mean, run crews in general, running clubs, whatever you want to call them. I've seen that too in recent years yeah. where, I mean, yeah. you got the old school like track clubs that, I mean, they, yeah, they get along like outside of competition, but they're never like collaborating on things. But like yeah. with, you know, crews, and I don't know exactly like what's the differentiator between a club and a crew, but you see a lot of crews do things together. Um, yeah. And it is this like bigger community and you've got different yeah. crews that exist in different cities but also different crews that exist in the same city and yeah. for the most part you know get along will collaborate on things i mean they'll do their own things define themselves in their own way but also just recognize like hey you know there's a there's a cool crew over there doing you know doing their own thing you know and and we respect yeah. that we want to support them and you know you feel that kind of mutual synergy and i, I don't think that's something that you know really was prevalent all that long ago yeah. And, but then what I started to see was the big brands come in and they break that up. Yeah. And so I don't ever want that. And that's part of the other reason too. That's part of the motivation of creating an apparel line that hopes to speak to these communities that we're talking about, these run mm -hmm. crews is because the brands come in and, and, and break up friends and break up communities that used to collaborate. Yeah. Right. If one goes with Nike and one goes with Adidas, it's like they can't even talk to each other. It's annoying, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I've seen that happen in some places, and I'm not really deeply versed in this, but eventually, not in every case, but eventually what happens is, I mean, and Pioneers is an example of this, like they, they break ties with the brand because of that. Um, yeah. Because either the, you know, the crew realizes, okay, this brand is not true to what we want to be. Yeah. Like, it's just not a good match in that way. Or you know, the, the brand that is going to support a crew for, you know, a year or two, then all of a sudden decide to stop doing it. And then they're out of the picture. Um, yeah. and then, you know, the crew sitting there being like, oh man, did we like sell out to that? And like, look what yeah. it, you know, look what it kind of cost us. I've seen that yeah. happen in a few yeah. different places. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reality of it. Yeah. Because what we create in the crew culture, uh, and just to kind of quickly define what I see as crew and club, club is you come you want to be fast you want to be the best there and that's what kind of you're there to be a fast runner right crew is like you're here for community and support and for the fun and love of running and what it does for you outside of running um you know that's a loosely the way i think of, of crews and clubs yeah. and um and just breaking up that culture let's talk just a little bit about run culture what does that mean to you so run culture is very, you know, it's it's a very broad term. Mm -hmm. um, I like, to, I, so we've, we've kind of coined our own term, run the culture. Um, and when I think of that, I think of like everything that we bring to the table in running, which is like all the, the things that go around, right? Like the running is, you know, we all run, but like, what else do you do? With, do you cheer each other on? Do you stay until the last person comes? Do you celebrate your wins with each other, um, you know, it's that community and, and family support feel to it. It's that, it's that, uh, that swagger that you bring into it as well. Um, the chain uh, so when I think of culture, I think of like everything you add on top of just the running. What is running as a culture, as a community and, or as an industry missing right now? <laughs> um so there's a lot going on right now there's a lot going on and i think even if we look back at at, at boston marathon 
weekend mm-hmm. on Newberry Street, how many mm-hmm. brands were popping up, trying to be a part of kind of the because before, if you if you fast, you know, you, you were wine like two or three years ago, like these brands didn't have pop up shops on Newberry Street. They didn't, right? This year, there was like four or five. So at least, at least, Pioneers Apparel was one of them. Pioneers Performance Street was a part of them. Um, and so, I don't know if is as much. So what I obviously see is like, you know, there's there, there's there are these booming communities that look like mine, that are being underrepresented in terms of like stories being told the correct way apparel that's made for them um so i don't know if anything's missing other than like everyone wants a piece of the growth Mm -hmm. but they don't know and so like they don't know how to capture it they don't know how to create that community or that culture so they got to go find people who are doing it and try to be a part of it um and so i think there are a lot of opportunities i don't know if i could say anything is missing outside of what i'm chasing to, to kind of like speak for I guess. How would you put into words what it is exactly that you're chasing? I'm chasing representation and ownership of what we've created and what we do in this, in this running culture. Um, and putting, because we are so, when I say we, I mean communities of color. Um, we have added such a freshness to running whether it's the chair zone and I'm not taking credit for any of that myself. I'm a part of getting a part of that, right? Like learning about it and carrying it on. Um, chair zones, the way you chair confetti cannons, DJs at these marathons, um, like fun things around shakeouts, fun things that are like, you know, collaborative. And, and so like everything you do around that sport, a lot of, if you just think of American culture, like you think of like black culture tends to become popular culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so if black and brown people are then coming into running, it's only a matter of time until our culture becomes the culture in running. But I don't want to see what happened in music happen to running culture. Underground hip hop, everyone was cool. Everyone got, got along. And then the, the record labels come in and they, they break them all apart and some people make money and some people don't. And the people who have contributed to the culture are being left on the outside. I see that in running. Yeah. Like very much so. Yeah. It's what we were talking about a little while ago with a lot of the, the big brands trying to, yes. you know, kind of kind of crack into that part of the culture. Yeah, exactly. And no one, the only people that make money are the brands. Mm-hmm. And so like, I want to, I want to, I want us to own a piece of that, a piece of what we're creating, and then also have something that we can call our own, which is, you know, I launched as a crowdfund and I continue to want to be, you know, I want to be supported by the crowd and would at some point hopefully want to give ownership to the crowd, right? It's not about me making the money. It's about me see, being in a position to be able to speak for, or at least be at the table for these, these cult- this, the culture, for the culture, uh, for the communities, uh, you know, and... And I just don't, I just don't like seeing people take, to take an advantage of. To bring it back to you for my final two questions, as we wrap this one up, you mentioned a little while ago, how you've been off Instagram. And this yes. is something that I wanted to follow up with you on because we did discuss it briefly when we did met we? in Boston back in April. But 
it says right in your Instagram profile, which I went and looked at before we got on this call to see if there was anything interesting in there. We're talking about unplugged and away for a bit. When did you make that decision and why? Uh, it was shortly after I closed the pop-up shop. So that might have been like late April, early May, probably early May because I closed the pop-up shop May 1st. Mm-hmm. And I had had all the success. Like we had resounding success at the pop-up. And all I could think about was who didn't support, who wasn't there, what didn't work, how other people were doing it this way. And I was like, Sid, what's wrong with you? If you can't be, if you can't find joy and happiness in doing something that you love at a high level, which you're doing, then what, 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 when is it ever going to be enough? Like, is the next pop-up going to make you happy? And I'm not saying happy. Like I was, I'm like, I'm like happy, but like, it's messing with my mental. I, I know what you mean. And so you're always comparing and the mental, and so I, I, then I started doing some research into like the, you know, the science of happiness and the brain on social media. And you start to learn that there are, that that's what social media does. Like the human brain, the way we have evolved is because as we evolved, you have to be popular. The people who are most popular were given more food, more attention. And so they grew stronger. They reproduced, right? And so our brain has that. And I'm probably not saying this as eloquently as I should, but our brain has been developed in a way that we need you know, popularity equals growth and reproduction. Mm-hmm. Platforms like Instagram play on that. Mm-hmm. And so then you find yourself, even though I have a beautiful family, growing healthy, healthy, healthy family, healthy business, community that I've built, and then I'm still not really finding that joy when you're supposed to. So it's like, I got to get off this thing. You know, if I want to do something that's important, I got to get off this thing. So that's why I'm plugged. <laughs> I get it, man. I mean, you told me you've been off for a while. Yeah, and that's exactly why. I mean, I, I mean, I, I said this uh, in other episodes of of this podcast and elsewhere, but I mean, it was September twenty first, two thousand twenty. Shut down all my social media accounts. Quit it altogether. Just cold turkey. It wasn't a, a gradual pulling away. There's no big announcements. I, like, I got to get off this for all the reasons that you just described. I mean, wow. I think there are a lot of benefits to these platforms. They certainly can connect people. They can get a message out. We still have an Instagram account for the morning shakeouts, how we let people know about new episodes of the podcast. But I found myself personally, mostly through Instagram, but Twitter as well, which is its own different beast, like searching for validation through yes. those platforms. Go. And that's a great way to put it. Yes. The way that, the way that they're um, engineered is to keep you coming back for that. And it's, I mean, we're, we're human beings. I mean, I got, I got sucked in. I realized it. I mean, I, I'm glad that I had enough self-awareness to, to realize it. And I know just in my own family, like there's history of addiction. I've seen patterns of addiction in my family. And while something like social media isn't going to be as destructive as drugs and alcohol, the effect that it was having on my brain and the way that I was thinking about things, and then in turn, how that affected my actual behavior was much the same. And it was, it was scaring the crap out of me because I'm like, the further I end up in this hole, the harder it's going to be to, to get out. And I knew that I had, it was like, I'm very binary. It was like either I'm, I'm in or I'm out. And I had, I had to go out. Um, and it's been hard. I mean, it's, it's really, really hard. I mean, there were definitely like to bring it back to the addiction metaphor, like withdrawals. I mean, there were definitely yeah. withdrawals for it. And then when you think about it from the business side, you're like, well, 
that there goes there goes my business you know as like yeah. an entrepreneur like i i like uh society tells me that i need to be on social media or like there's no way that this can succeed and i mean it's been almost 2 years now it's definitely gotten easier i still have those moments where i'm just yeah. like i feel like i'm missing out like i'm not in this world anymore but when i step back i'm like oh i'm able to appreciate things much more than i yeah. than i could in the past i'm able to to recognize my wins kind of like you just described cuz i i had a similar thing it's like oh something would go really really well and objectively like when I step back and be like, all right, that, that went really well, but it was never enough, right? You're like, yeah, well, this enough. this person did it this way and got this many more likes. Or yeah. this person did it that way and like, you know, that really blew up and mine didn't. So like I must suck, like type of thing. And I think yeah. just for me, removing that so that I wasn't constantly playing the comparison game has been one of the best decisions I've ever made in my yeah. life. I love and appreciate how how vulnerable we both are about this right now because there are so many people who feel the same way. The people that people reach out and they're like, why aren't you on social? And I'm like, I tell them, and they're like, oh man, like I feel you. Like I'm, I envy you. I envy you. We're all going through it, right? And and so like us talking about it is going to help someone. Um, and it's just like, yeah. And when we talked the first time, you told me you didn't have a social media. We never talked about the reasons why. You just, you didn't have it. And I ended up falling into the same. So like, yeah, yeah that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And I've also heard from people who are like, where did your, I went looking for you on Instagram to send you a message and I, I couldn't find you. So I like found your email, like through your website. I'm like, well, you still got in touch with me. You know, that was one yeah. of my big fears. Like, oh, how, how are people not going to get in touch with me? It's like, all right, well, I exist in other places online. Yeah. But exactly that. I heard from a lot of people, some who are, are very well known, have massive followings on some of these platforms who've said to me, if I weren't X, Y, and Z, professional athlete, owner of a business, blah, 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 I would be off it altogether. Yeah. I'm like, well, well, you, you could be, but I understand yeah. like the, the, the struggle, the, the back and forth of, of why you might not be, or like, oh man, I, I wish I could do that. And it's like, well, yeah, you, you, could. you could, you're going to have to sit in that discomfort for a while, yeah. um, which is really, really, really hard. And I think there are a lot of people who, are are afraid of that and because yeah. of that they you know they they want to avoid it so i i wasn't sure like what depth we would get into on this particular topic and it is here toward the end of our conversation but i hope those who have made it this far if you are dealing with similar struggles um you know let let's sit and i tell you that it'll, it'll be okay um you're right because people look at us like we're successful right we mm -hmm. have these brands and we have this thing and we're dealing with it yeah right and so it humanizes it um and yeah, it's important to talk about these things. Yeah, uh, and and the power the power of these of these platforms. Last question, and it's one that I ask of a lot of my guests, not all of them, but to round this one out, what is exciting you, Sid Baptista, most in running right now? The growth in so all right, I've seen running grow, but now I'm seeing it grow in a different way. I'm seeing people create running communities faster and they don't know what the existing culture is or like what even the existing crew culture and kind of the history of that. They're just creating their own 3.0 running communities. Mm -hmm. And those things are taking off across the country. Uh, and that's what's exciting me about, about – uh, that's what's exciting um, me right now about running. Um, and just – 
the amount of people who want to be a part of it is exciting too. There's a bright future. It's a bright future. Me getting back into running is exciting too. Like re fight, figure out my form. So I'm falling in love with it again. Um, but yeah, man, it's like, I think, I think the sport is growing and it's for the better. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap this one up. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I hope you can fix your feet so that next time I'm back home in Massachusetts, I come out <laughs> yes. for a Pioneer's run that I'm able to run <laughs> alongside you. And I thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me and letting me talk. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring and summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. My personal favorites are the Session Tee and the Alston Half Tights. If you buy anything on Tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. Use the code MARIO22 when you check out at Tracksmith.com. Gooder sunglasses are my favorite shades to run in, drive, walk the dog, and whatever else I'm doing outside. They don't bounce, they won't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just $25 to $35 bucks a piece. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com Mario and use the code Mario15 to get 15% off your entire order. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for you this week. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.